Well, good to see you all this morning, and uh, thank you so much for the welcome and for the very kind and gracious invitation to speak. And uh, thank you for not letting go of me either. Um, when we were singing there, I, first, I remembered the first Sunday I walked in here uh, three years ago. And uh, the day before that, my world had just turned upside down. And I walked in lower than a wheel's belly. And um, over the next three months, I don't think there was a service here that uh, I didn't get through without uh, sobbing. Um, but the Bible says that weeping endures a night, and the joy comes in the morning. And the seasons change, and so here we are today. And so thank you for the invitation to speak. You know, Dave uh, was sharing with me that this series is uh, community voices speaking on Jesus or something about Jesus. And when I read that, I thought of the Sunday school, a little Sunday school uh, where the teacher was, had gathered them all together and she said, um, well, today we're going to play a game and I'm going to describe something to you and you have to guess what it is. And so all the children uh, quieted down and she said, okay, what I'm thinking of is this little furry animal with a big bushy tail. It climbs trees, trees and gathers acorns up for the winter. Who can tell me what it is? And no one said anything. And she said, come on, you, you know what it is. A little furry animal, big bushy tail, climbs trees and eats acorns. Who can tell me? And then after a moment, one wee girl raised her hand and the teacher said, yes, Emily. And she said, well, it sounds to me like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. <laughs> because the answer to everything is always Jesus, isn't it? It's always all about Jesus. And today, I'm going to come at that from a slight angle. And we're going to turn to James chapter 3. But before I read this chapter, I actually have a very serious announcement to make. And I'm not quite sure if it's my place to do this. It really gives me no pleasure to do it. But there's a member of this church that has been causing a lot of trouble. And not just recently, but actually over a longer period of time. They've created conflict, brought disunity, spread gossip. And quite frankly, they've left a lot of people wounded. Things that they've said have assassinated people's characters. Their criticisms have been unbridled and poisonous. And behind the scenes, they've sowed the seeds that have caused a lot of division and hurt. Now, this member is present here today. And I know that I'm just a guest speaker here. It may seem extremely audacious of me, but I'm going to take the bold step of publicly naming them. You know, in the letter, in his letters to the churches read out to the whole assemblies, Paul named those who caused the dissent. And so likewise, I feel that this troublesome member ought to be called out. So let me just call out their name and then we'll let the chips lie where they fall. But the name of the member I'm referring to today is the tongue. Because in the reading we're about to look at, in James chapter 3, verse 5, James says that the tongue is a little member whose potential for chaos is yet out of all proportion to its size. And if you could see the look of relief on all of your faces, you wouldn't believe it. Some of you almost stopped breathing there for a moment or two. I think Dave maybe nearly fell off his chair. So if you've gathered your composure, let's read James chapter 3 together. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. 
And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the horses, mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not so to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. I wonder, are there ever any times whenever you get puzzled by the Bible? I know that we all certainly get blessed, blessed and nourished by it, but I wonder, do you ever get puzzled? Do you ever have those moments whenever what you read appears to run contrary to your reason? So for example, what about that occasion whenever Jesus cursed the fig tree because there were no figs on it because it wasn't the fig season? How do you understand that? It seems a little bit confusing. Or what about whenever he told Peter to go and catch a fish and uh, open its mouth and find therein two coins, one for him and one for Peter, in order to pay their taxes? The epitome of silverfish sounds a little bit fantastical. Or what about that very inspirational story in 2 Kings where Elisha the prophet was minding his own business, making his long walk up to Bethel, Whenever we read he was jeered at by a roving band of 42 youngsters who teased him because of his MPB, his male pattern baldness. And Elisha was so offended and his feelings were so hurt that he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And instantly we read two she-bearers emerged out of the wood and mauled all 42 youngsters and the implication is to death. How do you understand that? Probably for me, perhaps the most incredible story is that of Balaam and the talk, talking donkey in Numbers chapter 22. So as he went along the way, the donkey wouldn't go in the direction that Balaam wanted him to go, and so he started to strike it. And the moment he started to strike it, the donkey started to speak. Now, if that had been you or I, we probably would have fainted on the spot. But apparently, Balaam seemed to be nonplussed that his donkey was talking to him. It was like the original biblical version of Shrek. And the two of them had this heated conversation, and you can read about it there in verses 28 to 30 of Numbers 22. So speak about, talk about talking through your ass. That was the very first occasion of that. And you know what makes it so bizarre to me is that apart from the serpent in the garden, this is the only other occasion in the Bible whenever an exception seemed to be made to the order of creation. Because remember how in the beginning we're told 
in the Genesis poem that God created the entire cosmos by an act of direct speech. He said, let there be, and there was, light, darkness, stars and sea and earth, birds and fish and creeping things and animals to roam the earth. And after all that was done, then he said, and let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. And so it was mankind made in the divine icon. And mankind was then set apart from the rest of creation, not just because he was invested with his soul and with aspects of personality and the ability to think and reason and invent, but also most obviously in this regard, in the capacity to speak. He made us into speech creatures, not stone creatures or sea creatures or winged creatures, but human beings made in God's own likeness with the capacity to join him in the work of creation by speaking things into being. And I don't mean that in some kind of bizarre, charismatic, hyper-spiritual way that some of us have been acquainted with, but something much more realistic than that, that actually by our words, we have the power to create either worlds of real good or worlds of real damage. The only power we don't have is to uncreate what we've created. So in other words, whenever those worlds of ours have gone out of our mouths, they've gone out. Even when we've had second thoughts, even when we said, hang on, wait a second, I didn't mean it, those worlds will go out, spinning away to do whatever they were created to do. So is it any wonder then our preacher today, James, who we read in chapter one, verse one, is a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ? He wants to let us know that of all the body parts that we think might give us trouble in the practice of our faith, it's our tongues that we better watch the most. Because if we can't figure out how to bridle them, then we deceive our hearts and our religion is worthless. Now, if you've ever, ever sat under his ministry, you'll realize that as a preacher, James is a bit of a scold. His letter is peppered with more than a hundred imperatives. Do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, or else this will happen. And of course, you know that there are some preachers who like to scold just for the sake of it. Some of us are acquainted with that as well. And then there are some who scold because there's something that they're passionate about. And James is passionate about what it means to live as someone who has faith in Jesus, and that at the very least is therefore worth enduring his berating for. And in this third chapter, in his little sermonette on the tongue, he comes to the plate swinging. First of all, with a hot warning for wannabe teachers, those who would aspire to instruct others, perhaps because of the status and prestige associated with that role, especially in a day like his, when very few could read or write. His word to them was, don't be too hasty, and here's why, because teachers are going to receive the more stricter scrutiny. Because what is the tool of a teacher's trade? Obviously, the chalkboard and the overhead projector, but more than that, the tongue. And with it, he or she has the power to influence many others, either for good or ill. And he says, many of us stumble in many ways, teachers and preachers included, because the more words you put out, the more you're likely to trip up and if there's anybody and they're never at fault in what they say, then they must be perfect, either that or they're dead. Like the headstone I read about in the graveyard somewhere that said, beneath this lump of clay lies Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. 
It's only perfect people who have completely perfect speech. In fact, James adds, if anyone's really good at exercising restraint on their tongue, then they're more than likely to succeed at exercising restraint on all their other parts of their bodies as well. But hold on a second, says someone. Isn't this a bit, you know, hyperbole? I mean, I know preachers can get exaggerated at times. But is this not a little bit over the top? Is James not being a little bit dramatic here? Well, actually, no, he's not. Far from it. Because he says, listen, I know that the tongue is only a small thing, just a little member. What, four inches long, a couple of ounces in weight? But don't let that fool you. Because its smallness is no limitation to the colossal power of its influence. And to illustrate, he says, here's a strong horse. How on earth would you ever get him to go where you want him to go? Well, you put a bit in his mouth, only a small bit, and yet it determines the direction of the beast. Here's a tall ship tossed about on the seas by violent gales. What is there to keep it on track? Just a small rudder, that's all. Or here's a great forest, acres and acres of wooded land. What could set it all ablaze? Reduce it down to nothing more than charred embers. Well, it only takes a little spark. Just a small match and up it goes. So don't underestimate the power of the tongue because of its smallness. It has the power to wreak vast damage because it too can be like a destructive fire. In fact, no other part of the body has the same power or range for influence uh, for destructiveness, and James says it can set the whole course of a life on fire. And we know that, don't we? You know, just one unbridled tongue can destroy a life, a friendship, a home, a community, a nation. It can stir up international conflicts to such a degree that the rage will only be quenched by rivers of blood. I offer Vladimir Putin as an example. And where does it all come from? What strikes the match to all of this? Well, James pulls no punches. He brings us right to the source of it, the end of verse 6. And he says, it's set on fire by hell. And hell is an ugly word, isn't it? The Greek word is Gehenna. It literally means the Valley of Hinnom. And historically, it was the valley outside the city of Jerusalem with a notorious reputation. It was once the place of child pagan sacrifice. Later on, it would be used as the city's dumping ground and all kinds of animal carcasses and corpses would be thrown in there and the fires in it would be kept burning to destroy all the rubbish and filth. And later on in the intertestamental period, that word then became the picture word that the writers used to describe the place of final condemnation. And James says that's what really stokes the flames of the uncontrolled tongue. Do you get the feeling that James would have been a good Baptist? And do you know what makes it worse? It's almost impossible to tame or bring it under control. Oh, we can train our, train our cats and dogs. About this time last year, I got me a yellow Labrador whom I'm named Blue. And I've just about trained them to leave me five inches of legroom in the bed. <laughs> we can train our pets. We can harness animals on the farm and bring them into obedience. If you ever go to a circus, there you'll see the wildest of creatures jumping through hoops and standing on their back legs and balancing balls on their noses at the crack of a whip or the clip of fingers. But the tongue, James says, no one can tame. 
And the danger is it's always liable to break out of its cage at any given moment. Now, can I say that, do you know the problem and so often in listening to a passage like this? So often we listen to it for someone else. You know, it becomes one of those nudge your neighbor sermons that as you're listening to James, a face flashes before your mind, maybe the one in the chair next to you, and you think to yourself, I really hope they're listening. Whenever I was a teenager going to the Pentecostal mission with my granny, so often when the preacher started to wax eloquent from the front and she thought what he just said applied to me, she would nudge me in the ribs with her elbow as if to say, that's for you, listen up. But you know, even if we've managed to dodge the school so far, I don't think many of us are going to dodge the next bit because James starts to turn up the heat. He says, oh, and this is what you all love to do as well. You love to come to church and say your prayers and use your mouth to sing high praises to God. And then when the service is over and you're out the door, with that same mouth, you start tearing down those who are made in that image. Did you hear the story before of a pastor who came around to a family from his church, uh, came around to their house for lunch one day? And while the mom and dad were in the kitchen preparing the dinner, the little boy was in the room, you know, trying to entertain the pastor. And the pastor said to him, eh, I wonder what we're having for lunch today. And the little boy said, I think we're having goat. And the pastor said, gee, that's unusual. What makes you say, think that? He said, because I heard my father saying yesterday, we're having that old goat for dinner tomorrow. And James says, you mean the lips that bring the blessing are the same lips that cause the bruising? The lips that bring the worship are the same ones that cause the wound. The very same. He says that's an inconsistency that nothing in all of nature corresponds to. Because verse 11, a spring doesn't gush forth both sweet and bitter water at the same time. It's either one or the other. It's either salty or it's fresh. Verse 12, a fig tree doesn't bear olives and a fine doesn't give figs. A plant only produces according to its own particular nature. And how can a mouth pour forth sweet praise to God one moment and the next? Curse and damn and blame and lie and wound and grieve and judge and slander a fellow human being. He says it's inconceivable and this is no time for nudging your neighbor. Now I warned you at the start that listening to James would not be an easy experience. But if we can hear him there's wisdom for us in a scold that might actually save our lives and those of others around us. So let me just peg home what James is driving at in a couple of phrases. Number one, a reminder that your words have power. See, we live in this changing digital age where so many words are flying around all the time. A world of Facebook postings and tweets and texts and news feeds and sound bites and all the rest. And so what starts out as a single tweet trends and within minutes, 140 characters have become millions. So many words all the time. It's no wonder that some of us don't think they're worth much anymore. When you hear thousands and thousands of words every day, it's easy to forget how powerful some of them still are. There's an old saying that when oil is plentiful, petrol is cheap. But even when petrol is cheap, it can still set things on fire. 
Do you remember the wee saying that came in handy when you were on the playground at school? Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Well, you know, even as a kid, I knew that wasn't true. Because for some of us, sticks and stones were nothing compared to some of the things that other kids could think up to say to us. And they would just spit them out and break all our bones without leaving a single bruise. And I've now since learned that some of them said those things because they were said to them first. And then others of them said those things because they were just trying to see what they could get away with. But either way, there's no disputing the power of people's words to leave their mark for a lifetime. And yet when I listen to James, I get impaled as well because it gets me thinking, how many times have my words broken bones? How many times has my mouth been open when it been, would have been far better closed? How often have I let out a sharp, biting, sarcastic, gossiping, slanderous word? How many times has my speech been just plain curless? How many times has my tongue spoken before my mind engaged? How often have I been slow to hear and quick to speak instead of being quick to hear and slow to speak? How many times have I brought someone harm because I was guilty of a runaway tongue that spoke in ignorance or prejudice or self-conceit or out of a lack of compassion or out of the depths of my own omniscience like the great Oz has spoken? Perhaps more times than I can care to remember. You know, some of you might be familiar with the name Tony Campolo. He's the famous, uh, well-known American speaker and activist who has fallen foul of the evangelical right in recent times because of his stance on certain social issues. Well, in one of his books called Let Me Tell You a Story, he actually gives the reason why he is unmoved and unafraid to remain in the bad books of the mainstream. Because of an experience he had at school with a boy named Roger. I want to read to you what he writes. Everybody knew that Roger was gay. All the kids in school would make his life miserable. When they passed him in the hall, they would call out his name in an effeminate manner. They gestured with their hands. They made him the brunt of a lot of cheap jokes. On Fridays after physical ed class, they would go into the shower, but Roger never went with them. He was afraid to, and for good reason. When they came out of the showers, all the boys would take their wet towels and sting his naked body by whipping the towels at him. One day, when Tony wasn't there, the boys took Roger, dragging him into the shower where they shoved him into the corner of the room. Folded up in a fetal position in the corner of that tiled room, Roger cried as five guys urinated all over him. That night, Roger went home and he went to bed sometime around 10 p.m. 10 p.m. They say that it was about 2 a.m. when he went downstairs into his garage and hung himself. Tony Campolo writes, when they told me, I realized I wasn't a Christian. Oh, I believed all the right stuff. I was as theologically sound as any evangelical could ever expect to be. But had the Holy Spirit really been in me, I would have stood up for Roger. 
When the guys came to make fun of him, I would have put one arm around Roger and with the other arm, I would have waved them away and said, leave him alone. He's my friend. Don't mess with him. But I was afraid to be his friend. I was afraid to stand up for Roger because I knew that if you stand up for somebody like Roger, people will begin to say nasty things about you too. And so I kept my distance and failed to be the loving person Christ wanted me to be. If I had been, Roger might be alive today. And so Tony Campolo says, now I'm trying to make up for that. And you see, that's how high the stakes are. No wonder it reads in Proverbs that the power of life and death are in the tongue. Because your words have power. Second thing I want to say is that your words are the index to your heart. Jesus said that, didn't he? He said, out of the abundance or out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So let me listen to a person talk for a while and I'll tell you what's in their heart. And if the contents of one's speech is full of hatred and strife and fear and unforgiveness and slander and resentment or hurt, pain, vengeance, whatever it is, actually the real issue is further upstream because it's the heart that pumps out the words. It's the heart that's the factory that makes the words. The heart's the root, the rest is the fruit. And you all know as well as I do that there are some plants and weeds and if you cut off their head and their, and their flower, they'll again and again, they'll still grow back. They'll still be back next season. You can take a dandelion and blow it, make your wish for love, life and happiness all you wish. Blow the head of it, but next season it'll be back to mock those wishes. The only way is to get down beneath the soil and dig out the root. And that's what's offered in the gospel, isn't it? A rooting out, a heart transplant. And behold, I will take away the stony heart out of you. And a new heart will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. And you'll be my people and I'll be your God. And if our faith doesn't offer that, then what else do we have to say? Some of you know that at the start of this year, I took up a new role as a prison chaplain in Oberstown Young Offenders in North Dublin. The Velveteen Rabbit hopped away and after two and a half years, I went back into that role again. And this is a prison for young people from all parts of the Republic, from Donegal to Kerry and up to County Clare. Some of them are in there for some relatively minor stuff, some of them for very serious crimes, armed robberies, rape, murder. Starts at age 13 and goes up to 18 and when they hit their 18th birthday, they're immediately transferred to an owl prison. You know, when you meet these young people, you see that they didn't come out of the womb like this. A great many of them have experienced a colossal amount of trauma and emotional injury in their early years. And you can just tell it, not just because you've read their files, but because it's written all over them. And you know, going in there for me has been a hugely shaking up experience. Because I would say, like some of you, I have experienced a lot of disillusionment in my faith journey in recent years. I went through my own period of deconstruction, so to speak, critiquing this and questioning that and so on. But in that place, I can tell you that what none of that matters. 
Because right there, it is literally the front line. And for many of them, it's life or death. And I find that in there, I've got to hold out to them a faith that works. Something that's real and solid and genuine. Something that actually does impact and change and offer hope for the future. Because if we don't have that, then what have we? And what James is getting at here is that with a new heart comes a new speech because that will be one of the telltale signs. And thank goodness, as Mr. Lewis said, that ours is a faith of continual new beginnings. And that takes me to the last word today. Not only do your words have power and are your words an index of your heart, but your words can move the mountains for good. You see, maybe after such a scolding, you're thinking, right, in the light of all of this, I am absolutely sunk. Best thing for me to do from now on is just join a monastery, take a vow of silence, because I'm impaled on the stake of my failure here. By the way, did you hear about the man that joined the Trappist order of monks? They're called the Trappists because they close their traps and they don't, they, they take vows of silence for long periods of time. And this new recruit came on board and they said, well, we're going to give you a quota of two words every five years. You're allowed two words every five years. And so after five years, they brought him in and they said to him, right, think carefully, what's your words? And he said, food bad. And the superior said, okay, we'll fix it, no problem. Another five years went by. After 10 years, he was brought in. Think carefully, you've got two words to speak. And he said, bed hard. And they said, no problem, we'll fix that. After another five years, 15 went by and he brought him in a third time and he, he said this time, I quit. And they said, no wonder you've done nothing but complain since the day and all you got here. <laughs> and so maybe you're saying, I, could, I would do well with joining one of these orders, but hang on a second, not so fast. Because the truth is, you know, for all his bargain, James actually never says, will you please just learn to shut up and say nothing? Now what he says is, Sorry, because if he was to say that, that would be tantamount to returning the gift that God gave us. God never said, take a vow of silence. What do we do then? Well, you know, it's so interesting, just as we prepare to wrap up, that in the chapter before this one, James was speaking about the role of faith and works, how that we're not justified by works, but that the presence of works in our lives justifies the reality of our faith. And then he goes on now in chapter three from works to speak about words. As if to say that words are also works, and very significant ones at that. Because just in the same way that one cruel, careless word can open a trap door and leave someone spinning down, isn't it true that the right word spoken at the right time can actually save a person's life? You say, well, how will we know what is the right word to speak? Well, in James chapter 1, verse 21, he wants us to know that God has given us a bit for our mouths as well. It's called the word of truth or the engrafted word. And it got planted inside us whenever he called us to himself. And when through our days we learn to yield to that bit, it keeps us from running away with ourselves, slows us down, teaches us to filter our words and to know which ones are right and when to say them at the right time. I love Proverbs 25, verse 11, in the King James, it says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. I wonder, have you yielded any apples of gold lately? You know, when you think of it, 
Jesus' ministry was such a ministry of words, wasn't it? Yes, it was a ministry of doing, but first and foremost, it was a ministry of saying. You read the Gospels and it just leaps out of the page. The way those words of his were like medicine to the ones that heard them. Weep no more. Your sins are forgiven. Do not be afraid. Rise, stand up and walk. The way he walked up to people and just spoke to them like someone who had known them their whole lives. The way his words just broke off the spell of fear and condemnation that some of them had carried for years by his teachings, by his beatitudes, by his stories and his parables. A certain man had two sons. And even when his enemies tried to impale him, it always turned out that they were the ones that walked away in the end with egg on their face because of the power of his words. Like the time they tried to catch him in a catch-22 situation about paying taxes. Remember what he did? He said, bring me a coin. He asked them whose superscription is on it. They said Caesar's. He said, well then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God what are God's. Did you ever hear such wisdom? Or this morning I was reading about the woman caught in the act of adultery and they were about to pound her to the ground with stones. And again, in an attempt to catch him, they said to him, the law says she should be stoned. What do you say? Do you remember his response? He that is without sin among you, let him be the first to cast the stone at her. And they all walked away, we read, beginning at the eldest down to the youngest. And even in the last moments of his life when he was hanging on a cross, his words were still healing the hopeless. We used to sing it years ago, one of Dottie Rambo's old gospel hymns. Even in death, he remembered the thief hanging by his side. He spoke with love and compassion, and then he took him to paradise. He spoke and things happened, and that's how still things still happen. I mean, isn't that what happened to us? He came to faith because someone told someone who told someone who told someone else who told us. And maybe all they said was, I'm really praying for you or God loves you or would you like to come to church with me someday or whatever it was it was something that soothed us or something that angered us or something that intrigued us or maybe something that caused us to come back for more and that's the way it's been working now for almost 2,000 years people talk and the word gets around people talk and lives get changed people talk and hearts get made whole and there's a million ways to do it. And I feel we sell God short when we forget that. I used to hear people say, oh, the gospel is simple as A, B, C. Admit, believe, confess. It's, not as, it's A to Z and then all the way back to A again. Because it could be just reading Psalms to someone that's sick. It could be telling the truth to someone who's asked for it. It could be ending a fight with those words that are so hard to say. I'm sorry. It could be writing someone a note that restores hope. It could be inviting a stranger in. It could be looking at someone dead in the eye and saying, you are so welcome here. It could be saying to someone, weep no more. Do not be afraid. Your sins are forgiven. Rise, stand up and walk. They're all proclamations of the gospel. Because the gospel's just a bunch of words. Whenever we proclaim them through our mouths, we never proclaim them alone. And they never come back to us empty because they affect what they proclaim. 
So isn't that what you'd want to be known for? Isn't it? Someone who restores health to the world one blessed word at a time. Let me just share this and I'll sit down then. But in the prison, this is what we pray for all the time. We pray for those apples of gold. And recently I was in the cell of a young man considered one of the most dangerous boys in the whole place. He's actually 17. He's been in prison since he was 14 for a very serious crime. On the second day of the job, I got a note that he wanted to see me. I'm not going to lie, I thought, jeepers. When I went to see him, any preconceived idea in my mind went out the window. All I saw was this vulnerable kid. He started to tell me a story that his father's in jail, his mother's in jail, his older brother's in jail. He was raised by his granny. He never knew his own mother. She is a heroin addict. And he told me that one day he came out of the boxing club at the age of 11, and there was a woman standing in front of him, and she wanted to give him a hug. And obviously, because she was a stranger to him, he had no idea who she was, he refused her. And in that moment, his mother took out a knife, started to slash her arms, her neck, straight in front of him. He said, I was 11. Can you imagine the trauma of that? Anyway, we got this wonderful chance to sit with him and pray with him. He said to me, do you think God listens to us when we pray? And in that moment, I asked for an apple of gold. Scripture flashed to mind, and I said to him, I'll call him Adam. I said, Adam, do you know that God says that even every hair on your head is numbered? And there was a look of shock on his face. And he said, say that to me again. And I said, God says every hair on your head is numbered. And he said, I've never heard that in my life before. And he really took it in, and then he said, well, what happens if you go bald? And he said it really seriously. And I said, listen, let's not go. That's a touchy subject. We'll not go there. <laughs> but you know, every single time he has a court appearance, and he has a lot of them, he calls for me. And we sit together and say a prayer, and I remind him of these words that God knows every hair on your head. Beloved, it's the power of our words to shape a destiny. And if we choose, our words can literally move the mountains for good. Let's all close our eyes and we'll pray together. I was reminded this morning of that story in Isaiah where Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up on his throne. And his first response was to say, woe is me because I am an unclean man with unclean lips. Remember what happened? A seraphim was dispatched from the throne, took a burning coal from off the altar and touched his lips, cleansed them. And after that, he heard a voice saying, who will go for us? Whom will we send? Isaiah said, here am I. Send me. Maybe in these moments you'd like an experience like that. For your heart to be touched so that your lips could be touched. 
I'm going to invite you to open your heart as we pray together. Lord, I just thank you this morning that you are the God who works through cracked vessels. That's all we have to give, just our cracked vessel, nothing else. Thank you that you've put within them a treasure, the excellency of which is so glorious. And I pray that, Lord, for wherever we find ourselves in our lives, that you would so move in our hearts and souls that our lips would bear the fruit of the righteous. And Lord, that by our lip and by our life, that, that you would flow through us and that your grace would touch the hard hearts. Lord, I just thank you for everyone here today and I pray that uh, your grace would be upon us today and in the days that are before us. Thank you for this time together. Bless us as now as we come to the table to partake of these emblems and we ask it in Jesus' name.